Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of the We Belong Here podcast powered by Civic Commons. I'm your host, Frank Nam, and I'm the project director for We Belong Here. I'm really excited to host uh, three guests who actually uh, don't know each other, and they are all, um, what ties them together is that they all use storytelling as part of the work that they do. Without much further ado, I want them to uh, go ahead and introduce themselves. So let's hear from our guests. Hi, I'm EJ Ko. And uh, I guess really quickly, I'm a poet. And I just wrote a recent memoir called The Magical Language of Others. Thank you, Frank. And hi, um, everyone. Uh, happy to be here. Name's Luis Ortega, uh, pronouns he, him. I'm a multidisciplinary facilitator, storyteller, and uh, the founder and director at Storytellers for Change. Hi, Frank. Hi, Luis. Hi, EJ. I'm, I'm Becky Whitmer. I am professionally the managing director at ACT Theater, um, which is in downtown Seattle. And I have worked on the um, producing side and marketing side of the arts for over 20 years now. Awesome. So as you can tell, the, all our guests uh, are embedded in storytelling and storytelling is embedded in the work that they do. That they do. Today, uh, start. we're going to ask them a question. Uh, and the question is this. So we're all connected by our love for stories and our belief that there is power in them. What's a story that resonated with you in terms of a pivotal moment? And any sort of, uh, any sort of format works in terms of stories. So we'll go in reverse order here. Well. So a story that resonated with me, um, you know, I went to Lynn Nottage, who's a playwright. And earlier this year, we at ACT, we were supposed to be producing Lynn's play Sweat to start our season. And uh, she's an incredible writer who does a lot of her work by interviewing um, people, going to visit towns and getting to know the sense of a town and then crafting a story around their experiences. I had the, the honor to work on her play Ruined in 2010, um, which had a huge impact about um, bringing attention to war in the Congo and the devastation on women there. Her play Sweat, it's, it's about a town in, in Reading, Pennsylvania, um, and the entire town's economy centers around a factory. And most of the play takes place in the bar across the street where all the factory workers go and blow off steam and, you know, talk as friends and um, just gather and have a good time after work. They've spent their entire lives together in this town and their parents, their grandparents worked at this factory. Um, everything's just centered around that. Then in the, in the plot, a management job opens up and a few of the people go for it. And uh, there's uh, two women play really great friends. Um, and one is a black woman and one is a white woman. And they both go for this job and the black woman gets promoted. That's when you really start to see the underlying resentment and the racial tension of um, what truly exists within their relationships and um, things start to unravel in the town. And as um, this woman is promoted into this position, the factory ownership changes the direction of the factory. And they really put it on her to break up the union and break up the jobs um, that all of her friends have. And it, so it's, it's about NAFTA. It's about, you know, an entire town whose economy is centered on, on something that when it breaks apart, what happens to that community and that society? Um, the union raises a fight and they get locked out of the factory and people just start to turn against each other. For me, it really tells kind of the fallacy of the American dream. 
I saw this play February of 2017 at the Public Theater in New York. It was written well before the 2016 election. But when I saw this play and it ended, I just sat there and went, oh, okay. It was a glimpse into a community that um, I don't see in my everyday life. And I think that we don't see a lot in the Northwest, certainly in Seattle, in everyday life. And it was a way to really get a glimpse into how we got here and to understand people. I felt tense just uh, hearing about that situation, about the promotion, but then also like the person actually has to go and break the union or be the person that does that and how divisive that must feel. Yeah, I can't wait to see a play. Theater, uh, you know, I, I can remember very clearly in this moment, the first time I ever read A uh, Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I had, I had just moved to this country, so I was uh, 14 years old. I was still learning English, uh, and this was uh, a book that my dad gave me, uh, and my dad did not come with us to, to the United States. so. And it's a really long book. I don't know. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, and, and you can get a little bit lost with the book. And my dad like told me just so many amazing things about it. Like my dad can quote parts of that book. And I didn't get it. You know, like I will read it and then I will leave it. And I will just get and the thing is, if you're not familiar with the book, the book spans seven generations. Right? There's like seven generations of, of a family, the one day a family really going through life. When you're reading the book, and, and at my age at that time, I started reading it when I was 14. I didn't finish reading the book until I was in college, actually, when I finally sat down and, and, and I read it all the way through, that I took a step back and began to think about the larger framework that the book has. And there's a couple of things for why like, it resonates with me so much. Um, one is um, that that book introduced me to magical realism. And, and for me, magical realism... Um, has rhymes in some ways with um, a science fiction that's a little bit more raw uh, because it's about trying to see magic in, in everyday life and seeing everyday life as, as, as things that are so difficult to believe that they are real because they are difficult and they happen to be real. So you escape into magic and you escape into fantasy to try to make sense of just the complexity or pain uh, that surrounds you. Later on, you know, I, I, I think another book that resonated more with me at a younger age was uh, Isabel Allende's uh, Casa de los Espíritus, House of the Spirits, which that one did captivate me right away. And, and, and I think it's also multi-generational, but not as much as Hundred Years of Solitude. But then it, it hit me sort of later on very powerfully, um, you know, how with this other book, Hundred Years of Solitude, just that the lesson in the book is that how easy we forget history and how easy we forget where we come from. And, and on a current theme in the book is that as the generations move forward, they are being revisited by ghosts of, of their past, their ancestors, essentially, trying to, trying to remind them uh, where they come from and where they're going and where they've been. I don't know, like for me, a combination of just the, the, the magical realism, which offered me as an undocumented person in this country, a framework to to make sense of my status as uh, as an undocumented immigrant, and really beginning to ask myself, like I don't even know the full history of my family, seven generations going back, and yet I know that their ghost, their wisdom, uh, is very much present and influencing who I am today. 
And I think, you know, in, in moments like these, I'm just really thinking about that precept of seven generations, right? That That is part of so many different indigenous and, and native traditions of just really thinking intentionally, where do we come from and where are we going? The, the other thing that I'll just briefly mention around it is that that is difficult to belong when you feel alone. And I feel in this moment, there's an awakening of an understanding of, of, of solitude around social issues that have not received the necessary attention, care, compassion, and, and justice. So it's just, and it's been obviously more than 100 years. So 100 years even feels like a, like a short time to, to fully encapsulate that. So anyways, I, I've been thinking a lot about, about that book and, and those lessons um, in, in this moment. Thank you for sharing that, Luis. And it's a remiss of me to not even um, stage our conversation today in the midst of all that's going on. I was went to the Silent March yesterday, starting at uh, Jenkins Park here in Seattle, in the Central District to Beacon Hill and Jefferson Park. Just walking in silence with the uh, signs, the people, the heavy trauma that we're collectively carrying, particularly for our uh, black communities and African-American communities in terms of the police violence. Yeah, and I think uh, EJ also, um, in terms of the book that she's written, this idea of like the generational uh, trauma, right? And like what happens and how that's passed on and how we impact each other as generations move on is something that uh, definitely resonates. So thank you for sharing, uh, Luis. Uh, EJ, tell us a little bit about the story. Thank you, Becky and Luis and Frank for bringing us together. Those stories uh, resonate deeply. I remember I was, um, I went to a reading maybe last week with poet major Jackson, and he said something that um, sort of reminds me of what Luis just said, which is any moment isn't singular in and of itself. You know, that this present moment, it sort of pings back to the past and to the forward. It reverberates. And so anything we do now affects our past and it also affects our future. And to think of this sort of moment more, not as a snapshot, but as a web, as an entangled web of time that, you know, our work, especially as you know, writers and artists, is to disentangle that web, to understand um, where we've been and where we're going. That was like really moving for me to hear because it reminded me that it's not just about moving forward, but to be thoughtful, to be thoughtful about where we're moving forward or how we're doing this. As the past has shown us to be thoughtless is to be damaging. That reading was really, um, I, I felt just so, so right at this moment. I don't really have a story, but what I have is maybe just a few words that another poet said to me that I feel ended up shifting the trajectory of my life. And maybe it might do that for someone who's listening. I was in my poetry program in New York, and I was not in such a good place. I took a poetry class with this. Uh, wonderful poet, Eamon Grennan. And I just remember him saying to me, you know, if you want to be a poet, then just write poetry. But if you want to be a great poet, translate. And I think at the time, I had no idea what that meant, but I was open. And so I added the um, degree in translation without any idea of what that would do or be for me. 
And it was, you know, thrown me into the Korean language, into the Japanese language to understand the way we also think and move around ideas in, in English. And to understand that languages have their own histories, there's dominant languages, there's non-dominant languages, and that translation is a political act when we choose to do those things. Little did I know, just a few years later, I would move to Seattle and reunite with my family, as you, as you know, Frank, and um, find my mother's letters she used to write to me when we were separated. And they were all in Korean. So the task before me was now, you know, how to translate my mother's letters, which became the memoirs. My mom passed away in uh, May of 2018. And she had she just she was deeply religious and I grew up uh, religious as well although I do I don't attend church anymore. She had a prayer that she had written uh, by hand in Korean like on her, in her bedroom and I've seen it many times. And my I can read Korean but it's not great. And I had a really hard time translating it after she passed. And I had my cousin who lived with us uh, when she was in middle school and I was in college. And I asked her, and she just had a baby like two weeks after my mom passed. So talk about like, you know, like life, like, you know, death and life starting in like this cycle. But uh, and she, was, she was very busy for a very long time, but she hit me up maybe a year ago and said like, hey, I finally had a chance to translate her mom's uh, poem. It's not a poem, a prayer. And she's like, and it broke me. Like I had a, stop translating it multiple times because it was so like powerful and so heavy and so like stricken with grief and and hope at the same time that has also caused me to revisit my language as well and take more classes my father lives in korea he's been there since high school and uh, my parents separated and divorced when i was in high school and so i've been trying to reconnect with my own culture my own language and how like translating that thing was so powerful to read Maybe one day, EJ, you know, I can send it to you just for you to see it, just because I think it's just something to be shared. But, but yeah, so thank you for all of you for sharing your uh, stories about stories. And I'll answer this question myself real quickly as well. I mentioned Lisa Pachinko. And I know that EJ is actually doing a conversation for, with uh, Seattle Arson Lectures. Is that right? Yeah, uh, on Monday, um, Minjin Lee will be giving her lecture and I'll be in conversation with her, which is a big honor for me. I'm super jealous of you. Um, that's so rad. But uh, Pachinko is like a multi-generational story um, about Koreans during Japanese occupation who are living in Korea. And then it actually ends up, you know, in my lifetime where I was a student in the East Coast and having a generation, a young student there. Uh, it was really, it's really powerful. And so I've been a big fan of stories um, and the, the idea of using stories to like connect uh, others with others. And this idea of like a web, like each way, like you said, I think is a really transformative way to think about stories. So thank you all for sharing. Um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have uh, Louise start and then EJ, then Becky. And what you're going to do is just tell your own story, you know, as much as you want. You can take, you know, hopefully maybe three to five minutes to tell your story and, you know, share what you want. It's totally up to you. Thank you, Frank. I need to start by first honoring the land where, where I was born uh, and raised, uh, Tenochtitlan, Mexica land, uh, known uh, to probably most people uh, as Mexico City. And I also need to honor who I come from, who, who is my, my family, my mother, my father, uh, 
my sisters, grandmothers, grandfathers, um, and, and their surrounding communities as well. You know, the first thing to know about my story is that I come from a family of educators. Both my mom and my dad, uh, they were teachers. Both my grandfathers and grandmothers, uh, they were educators. And, and I have seven sisters, and, um, and all of them uh, teach. As we, as we sit here uh, thinking about the impact of present moment, as, as we're seeing a growing support for the Black Lives Matter movement, that does bring hope to me. Um, I, I also understand uh, there, there's a lot of difficulty uh, that comes with that and a lot of pain that comes with that because it's an issue that's been there for a long time and, and needs to be addressed. And, and I also thinking about the, the economic impact that, that, that you know, COVID-19 is having um, on our communities. And the other day I was talking with a friend and, and I was uh, just telling him, you know, I feel like this is the third time that my life gets turned upside down by, by an economic recession. Uh, the, you know, when I was in 2008 in college, that economic recession almost kept me from, from graduating from college. Right now, this economic recession has put a lot of stress uh, on, on my work and, and, and on our communities. Um, and back in the late 90s, an economic recession pushed my family and I out of our homeland. And we find ourselves arriving here uh, in the Wamish land, Coast Salish land, uh, in 2001, right after 9-11. I knew I, I, I was undocumented. Uh, I think the biggest part to my story uh, is really the process through which I went uh, to really understand what that identity means to me and, and how to reframe it from, from a perspective that could bring me uh, humanity and dignity and, and a sense of, of direction. I first uh, came out as an undocumented person uh, when I was a, a high school senior uh, in 2004, and I came out to my counselor as undocumented, and, and the reaction that, that, that she had was, um, was very negative. Uh, she she, she used the word illegal. Uh, I, to be honest, also use the word illegal. It's, it's the, the only time that I ever use that word is when I talk about this particular uh, part of my story. Uh, because what I often remind myself and what I, when I share this story with others, what I, what I remind them is that the, the words that we use to describe ourselves and, and to shape how we see others, quote unquote, right? Like how we see other people uh, deeply impact uh, how people also feel internally about themselves. So the biggest thing that I remember about that day is how I felt, and I felt very illegal. I felt just inherently wrong. And it was a, a very difficult place to be in, and, you know, just connecting this back to, to just this idea of magical realism, you know, we, we used to call it, and this, is, this language is not used as much anymore, but I remember, like, you know, as an undocumented person back in the early 2000s, uh, and the narrative still used from time to time, just coming out of the shadows, right? And for me, like magical realism, like I saw those shadows, you know, as, uh, as this manifestation across all kinds of different systems, all these different things that as an undocumented person, you have to think, you know, about just like, in, like there's all these extra layers, right? These shadows are always there. Like when you're getting a driver's license, when you are trying to rent an apartment, when you're trying to buy a car, when you're opening a bank account. And, and, that, and, and that shadow continues to be there. It impacts how, how I think about my, my relationship to my partner, how I think about my relationship to my mother, uh, 
it, it impacts, you know, I could not go back home to see my grandma before she passed. And I also had the opportunity to, as I reflected on these stories, to really begin to deconstruct them and really begin to think about that larger narrative of the dreamer. And also within that, really began to find a great sense of empowerment in expanding that notion of who is the dreamer uh, beyond just young undocumented people, but to be fully inclusive of everyone in our immigrant communities. And, and for me, that process is really what of finding humanity through the reflection on my story and the larger narratives that influence my story. I really felt compelled to make sure that I would amplify as many of those historically unheard stories as I could, because I believe those stories shape the empathetic capacity of society. If my mother's story is not known, um, then how can I expect there to be empathy towards her when we are talking about comprehensive uh, immigration reform? If only my story is known as a younger, uh, undocumented person, but the story of um, you know, of, of an, an immigrant that came to this country on their own, who happens to be older, who doesn't qualify for DACA or other form of relief. If his story is not known, then how, how will we create policy that ensures that he belongs to? So, you know, that, that really became the, the foundation uh, for Storytellers for Change. And, and again, just a fundamental belief that Historically, we need to reconcile which stories we've been hiding from and look for wisdom in those experiences and then amplify them radically. And that has to first and foremost center Black and Indigenous voices. And, uh, and my role really is to uh, continue doing that uh, in the best way I can by just facilitating those experiences that bring people together to, to see uh, each other through, through story. Thank you, Luis. Um, having worked with you and Storytellers for Change in the past, I definitely know how valuable that uh, facilitation uh, is and allowing people to have space to tell their own stories, to create a story of us, and actually to move forward in terms of the story of now. Um, and using that framework is really powerful. And it's, as, as an immigrant, you know, I think um, a lot about dreamers. I think a lot about you know, how that experience is totally different for undocumented folks. And uh, the privileges I have as an immigrant in different ways. And so thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, EJ, uh, I think you're next. Thank you for sharing your story. And Frank, again, for sort of bringing our stories together. I'm starting to sort of feel how our different stories intersect. So I, I really enjoyed being a part of this group, actually. I'm going to talk a little bit about. I guess it's everything I write about is the same about the same thing. It's just about me and my family, and so I'm going to. T and I and you know both the poetry book and memoir. If you people ask what what's the other one about, it's oh, it's exactly what the other one is about. It's I, it's almost like this is the story I'll write about for the rest of my life. So when when I was 14, you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area in California, and when I was 14, my father got this phenomenal job offer from South Korea. And it was, uh, it was difficult for my parents to turn down. And so the following year, when I was 15, um, my mother and father, they accepted the offer, moved to South Korea, and they moved me to 
maybe 90, it was 90 miles away to this town, um, to Davis. And they moved me in to live with my brother, who was four years older than me at the time, 19, into this little house. The idea was that we as a family can do this. We can live apart for three years. The contract was a three-year contract. That's the way it was decided. But the three years became five years, became seven years. And it was nine years before I reunited with my family again. And I think um, I write a lot about the time um, when I was living with my brother. We're just kids and sort of pretending to have parents and going to school and trying not to be suspicious at school, uh, driving. And obviously I um, you know, got into a lot of drinking and drugs, but I also attempted my life regularly during that time. At the same time, my mother would write me these letters uh, once a week in Korean. And sometimes, you know, I understood them and sometimes I just didn't. Um, my Korean wasn't so sufficient at the time. The experience of trying to understand the situation and why they were gone, I think, is important because of cultural differences. I think for my parents, I come from a family where it's more important to pay for your family than it is to be with them. And that was uh, something that had a little resistance as I was writing through and trying to say, you know, this is one way of living and these were the circumstances of our lives. I think another thing that I tried to believe in through this writing process is even though our experiences are unique, I believe that the experience of our emotions are not. We all have emotions and that's what's really wonderful about writing a story like this is you don't need to have been uh, separated from your family to understand how it feels to be alone. Um, you don't have to have um, attempted your life to understand what it feels to um, feel like you have no meaning. And so uh, a lot of that story and a lot of that is kind of comes down to this culmination of finding poetry. You know, I was must have been um, 20 years old. I, I was a very late bloomer. I wasn't reading many books and I wasn't very good at school. But when I was about 20 or so, I, I, I had to get out of college soon and I couldn't finish this math requirement. And my school counselor said, well, we need to replace this math requirement you have. And um, let's, let's talk a little bit about what mathematics is. And we decided that mathematics is the language of God, and the only way to replace the language of God is to replace it with the language of man. And so that school counselor, she enrolled me into my first poetry class. And it really becomes history from then on. I, poetry sort of found me in this vulnerable time, and I threw myself at poetry and then moved to New York City. And it was actually in Seattle that I as I mentioned earlier, I reunited with my family here and began writing, began translating, began um, the long task of forgiveness. The task of forgiveness, I think, anything for all families, but, you know, I resonate with the idea of forgiveness as a Korean American and the decisions my parents made about being there or as opposed to providing and how do they show love and what does it mean for them to, to love us? which was different than culturally what we were hearing from our American friends and counterparts. I think that's going to be a lifetime journey for me. I'm sure, as, as with you, EJ, that um, to reconcile that. 
like to at least have like some language and some understanding as I get older around it uh, helps a lot. Um, and then to read, you know, the experience of others uh, is incredibly comforting as well. So thank you for sharing really vulnerable truths. I appreciate it. Uh, Becky, uh, you're up next. Thank you, Luis. And thank you, EJ. You know, I was remembering, Frank, a conversation we had at maybe a year, maybe more ago when we were talking about the belonging project and you asked me a question because I've lived in a few different cities and you said, "What when you move to a city, what makes you feel like you belong? The thing for me is when I recognize someone I know at the grocery store. That's my thing. When I, I feel like, oh, I'm connected. I've, I'm, I have neighbors or I recognize someone at the grocery store. And then I realized, oh, my dad was a grocer. <laughs> um, we grew up going to see him at the grocery store and knew everybody that he worked with. And that was, you know, a place that was so close to our home and our upbringing, of course. And my dad knew everybody. Um, so just to give a glimpse into kind of the, the life I had growing up, um, which was in Wichita, Kansas. And my dad was a, a grocer. My mom was an office manager. They divorced when I was two. I have uh, two older um, blood sisters and uh, six amazing step siblings, uh, five step brothers and one step sister. And I'm the youngest of all of them. That puts me into the family position. You can imagine of what it's like to be the youngest of so many. Uh, learned a lot and got away with a lot. But my stepmom, who came into my life at a very young age, three or four, she was a theater director in schools and um, really inspired my um, love for theater and, and musicals. And I grew up being a singer, dancer, actress and loved performing. And um, my family was very supportive. They would drive me all over the Midwest to see the latest Broadway tour, which was usually an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. This was the early 90s. So you can imagine there was some Phantom of the Opera and some Cats and uh, Les Mis. And I just fell in love with all that. And then when I was 15, my dad and stepmom sent me to go live in St. Louis for a summer. Their friends um, had a son whose friends were starting a theater company. And they thought, oh, theater, well, let's send Becky there to go live for, you know, uh, six weeks and help build this theater company. And they had no idea what they were sending me to do. <laughs> um, I was the youngest by far, certainly the only person under 21. It was a very small fringe theater um, that they were starting on the Washington University campus. And they were doing some really provocative theater. And so I worked on a show called um, Fat Men in Skirts by Nikki Silver. And that was about a mother and a son who are stranded on a desert island and they resort to incest and cannibalism in their quest to survive. And I ran the reel-to-reel -reel sound for that show, um, sat in the sound booth uh, every night listening to these two actors tell this story over and over. And then we went into Harold Pinter's Old Times, which is about three adults who have a very mysterious and tangled past and um, also worked on the set for that show, um, worked on a patron database. Um, but over and over, every night I got to sit in the theater and listen to these actors tell these stories over and over. What I learned in that time was like, I remember realizing how different it was every night. And I got to talk to the adults afterwards as we were, you know, you know, striking things and getting everything ready for the next day. Every night we would talk about well, what did you hear this time? Well, no, I think this is what she meant. And this was such a gift to me to hear adults talking about all the different, you know, from day to day, same script, same actors, but every day taking a different piece of it. I just remember being 
so fascinated in that. And that summer just had such an impact on me. I think that was the, t- the summer I realized that you don't have to be a performer to be in the industry, to be in the performing arts, that it takes so many people to make, um, if you're doing a production that has scenery and lights and sound and direction and um, all of the people, you know, the community that it takes to put together live theater. I learned that there was more to theater than live musicals, which are great. Love a love a good musical, but that, you know, I didn't I didn't really understand that there were straight plays before that and just, you know, pure dialogue. And I learned about audiences and like watching audiences lean in every night and knowing that if you pay attention to them and invite them back, then you can build a relationship with them. And that was something that even in the early days of that theater company, they, they asked me to help with. So that's really what inspired my route to want to be behind the scenes. Um, I left Kansas in my mid-20s, which would have been 2002, and moved to Denver and worked for two different opera companies there in marketing. And uh, one was in the mountains and one was in downtown and just had some really awesome mentorship where I learned about marketing and public relations and community engagement and um, just fell in love with filling a house. And then by that, I mean the theater seats just fell in love and so fulfilled by people coming in and gathering and the lights going down. And then that you know, collective moment when everything's over and everybody connects and, and, and shares their response to what they've seen. I fell in love with that. In 2008, I moved here to work for Intamon Theater, um, which also had a great reputation for dialogue and doing plays that really give you something to talk about and address relevant themes. Um, and at ACT, where I've been since 2011, you know, that's what we're constantly trying to do is to have stories where it's like why this play now is a question we always have to ask ourselves is there has to be some relevance there has to be a conversation that helps us to understand each other like i said in the beginning what like what what is the outcome of this how can we understand the world and each other better and, and really do more for our community why does theater matter because i think it has the power to open people up to new ideas to new perspectives and to if not open hearts and minds um you know, perhaps have people listen in a way that they might not have if they didn't have, you know, any exposure to the kinds of stories that we're looking at telling. So that's how I got here and um, why I continue to want to provide opportunities to tell stories. I think that uh, if grocers wrote plays, it would be really fascinating because I think grocers see everyone in community and know when someone's having a bad day and probably see like our buying habits and wonder, Hmm, what's going on here? Why are you buying so much champagne? Or, you know, this is a, oh, you're just buying ice cream. I see. This is one of those days. I had the distinct pleasure of uh, being on the Act Theater's uh, ambassador group. And so it was great to like help to have Act Theater reach out to community members to, you know, think about not just diversifying their audience, but also what kind of stories are they, are they telling? Who are the stories they want to bring up? Uh, what are our reactions? How can we bring uh, more people that don't generally attend a theater to, to have access to the, the great cultural stories that are being told? And so I appreciate the work that Act Theater has been doing in our community. So thank you, Becky. You know, a lot of times when we meet new people, we go into transactions pretty quickly about like, what do you offer? What's your network? How can I like, expand with your network? How can I sign this contract with you, et cetera, et cetera. And we're changing that to really focus on the relationship. So 
our hypothesis is that if we really make the relationships with people the primary focus when you start, that would actually transform those transactions to make them much more powerful and long-lasting. And like I've been thinking about this idea of um, creating like more elastic transactions. I'm sure there's a marketing term somewhere, but as opposed to like spending your money with someone, but more like not just like saying like, oh, we're going to do this business and you're going to do this, I'm going to do that. But like, how do we keep elongating that transaction to our relationship? So go ahead, EJ. Something I'm working on now, maybe it's the only thing I, I have the energy I feel like to work on is I, I write love letters to strangers. So a few years back, I went online and asked people to send me a bit about themselves and their physical mailing address, and I would write them a love letter. And um, the following day, I got, you know, dozens of requests for love letters from all over the world. And so I've, I'm, I'm still doing that. And I think I am at about 141 love letters. And, you know, I think the goal is that I'll never quite get there or it's a lifelong project, but it's something that I, I really enjoy doing. So that's it. Thank you. I love that. And actually that connects. EJ, we um, ACT just did an event last week trying to put together some digital theater to share with people right now. And we did um, an event called Letters Aloud, um, where actors read letters um, that are available in the public domain. And they were curated around um, this time that we're in. It was originally around the um, COVID-19 and being in the pandemic and being in isolation. And um, then as we were getting closer to our date um, was when George Floyd was murdered. The Black Lives Matter movement became it's always been powerful, but really took a new level of um, heightened attention, certainly in our community. And we were able to tell a lot of stories um, through letters from hundreds of years ago to, to right now. So I'd love to see your letters. You know, right now, I'm trying to figure out, A, how to, how to keep a theater alive in a time of COVID when we can't gather in person, um, which is not what we're built and designed to do. Um, so to adapt to this digital world and to um, also then think beyond that of what might we be able to do in the community or outside and wondering what do people want to hear? Not just what they want to hear, but what do they need to hear right now? Um, and how can we be a vessel for that? You know, I just feel so responsible that we have access to thousands and thousands of people who um, connect with ACT and have for 55 years. And that's a responsibility. I, I want to make sure that we're doing, you know, taking that responsibility seriously and responding to the times we're in. So I don't have a particular project, but that's on my mind is, you know, story now and, and mm -hmm. how helpful. No, thank you. I mean, that's something that when we recover and as we get out of the acute uh, phases of COVID, that we need places where we can have and share stories. And I approach you uh, back. I started this project around belonging because I wanted, I knew that when people entered places like plays or theaters, uh, they took off some of this, just this uh, biases that they had. And there were much, people are much more open to new ideas and new ways of thinking when they uh, approach the arts. And so how can we use arts as that space to like allow people to like push the envelope of who they are and to expand their idea of like humanity? Uh, and to connect with each other more deeply. And so we definitely need uh, institutions like that. So thank you. So listeners, if you have any idea, great ideas for Activator to, to keep moving on and help them uh, keep their mission going, um, I'm sure Becky would love to hear. Uh, Luis. Yeah, so I, I recently had an opportunity to 
to work on a project with a good friend of mine, uh, Dominic Mix, uh, from Ambassador Stories. And he also has an amazing podcast called uh, No Blue Print Podcast. So shout out to, uh, to that podcast. Go check it out. Um, and, and Dominic is, is an amazing uh, digital storyteller, uh, just storyteller, period. Um, and we work with the Youth Ambassador Program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Discovery Center. And we produce this multi-virtual uh, event series titled In Community We Flourish. What we did is essentially uh, we spent uh, about a month um, interviewing youth organizers, activists, uh, executive directors, uh, and or community engagement coordinators of youth-driven, youth-focused, uh, social justice-oriented, community-based organizations. And, and we asked the question, what do communities need to flourish? And in, in this moment, um, there's sort of two things that I, that I want to offer. And, and one of them is uh, one of the, the first interview that we did for the project, even though we recorded the interview, so the interview actually didn't get released until our, our second episode, but the first interview that we recorded was with uh, Sean Good, and he's the executive director of Choose 180. And when we asked that question, and if anyone knows Sean Good, you, you know that uh, he's, he's just a beautiful presence in, in the world and the work that he's doing uh, to, bring, to bring healing and, and to transform our, our communities by really embracing restorative justice. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. But his answer, just to be brief, was grace. We need grace. We need grace in this world. Uh, and we need so much of it. So I just want to offer that wisdom to anyone that's listening right now. Um, I've, I've been struggling with a lot of feelings of guilt uh, in, in this moment. Uh, I was already struggling with feelings of guilt uh, throughout COVID-19. There's this really weird intersection of knowing that I have the privilege to be at a home uh, working, still struggling, and there's still many things about my life that, that are difficult and unjust because of who I am as a brown person and as an immigrant and as an undocumented person. But I, but I have privilege, and it just feels weird to feel guilty about having been, being where I am. Uh, and now with, with the protests, I, I, I feel guilt of not being able to do more and I'm not at my best when I'm feeling like that. So uh, just grace and giving myself grace and trying to ground myself and finding, based on my positionality and what's available to me, really finding the best way that I can reach out to others and be there for them, uh, it, it's what I'm doing. And, and, and each day, I, I do expect more from me. But if there's days where I fall short, I, I just offer myself grace. I, uh, and, and I try to channel that in, into the world. Um, and, and the last thing, briefly, you know, in, in that series, in Community We Flourish, we also had a chance to, to feature a lot of uh, local change makers. And if you want to learn more about uh, these amazing young people who are, are driving uh, really incredible movements across different parts uh, of our state and beyond, uh, just go check them out uh, at the Gates Foundation Discovery Center website, uh, support them. Let us follow our, our younger generations. They will, they will lead us uh, in, in the right way. And anyways, it's just anytime I feel I need a little bit of uh, a pickup, I just go and, um, and look through those uh, amazing profiles. And, and I immediately feel, feel inspired and energized. And that's great that you mentioned the, the Local Changemakers project that you're working on with the, the Gates Discovery Center. 
I've talked to uh, to Deborah Sepulveda recently to talk about how we can at Civic Commons help uh, amplify those stories going forward. And so, and then how can we bring together the all the partners that we have? And so it's really exciting. So thank you for that. I think um, with the work that they're doing uh, around restorative justice, I think it's so powerful and so incredibly important right now as we're having this conversation around uh, the police and defunding the police and what that means and what does society look like without a police force or with a, a different type of police force. How do we work with those who break the law as opposed to like imprisoning them, but actually like restoring them and restoring the, the, the hurt as well. And so that's really exciting. So thank you uh, to everyone. I want to kind of end with a quote and it kind of came up because we kept talking about how stories are connected and webs and how, you know, things that, you know, when we hear stories, it changes us. And it's the Octavia Butler quote that I think maybe a lot of you know, but all that you touch change, all that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. So with that, I want to thank my guests for spending time with us because time is one of our most elusive resources, uh, especially nowadays. And I'm honored and grateful for the conversations around storytelling, the work that you have done, the poems that you've written, the plays that you help uh, bring to life, uh, the way you use stories to gather folks to actually create movements. So thank you to you all. Thank you to our listeners. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And for now, stay safe, build bridges, and remember, we all bond. Thank you.